This is episode 580 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's article, Shoreline Survival Tips, Staying Alive Near the Sea. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Prepper Website Podcast. I'm so glad you can join us. Hey, let's go ahead and jump into our article. It comes to us from PrepperSwill.com, and the article is entitled, Shoreline Survival Tips, Staying Alive Near the Sea. I think this is a great article. You're going to enjoy it. Let's go ahead and jump in. The vast majority of the population of the United States lives within a few hours' drive of a coastline. Theoretically, therefore, we can assume that the majority of Americans, when faced with an SHTF scenario, will be within traveling distance of an ocean or sea. These shoreline survival tips will come in handy if you find yourself amongst those people. Now, this is fortunate, indeed, when you consider the outstanding resource the shore has to offer a savvy survivor. How one goes about the business of wilderness survival along a coast will be governed or affected by the precise type of coastline the survivor finds himself on. For instance, rocky shores in temperate zones may provide a survivor with mussels, mollusks, an assortment of seaweed, and various echinoderms, all of which may be edible or otherwise useful. Tide pools found in rocky outcroppings may contain fish of surprising size and quantity, as well as the edibles mentioned above. On the other hand, a sandy shore in the same zone may yield similar food sources, but these food items may be a bit harder to come by. Then again, this fact may be outweighed by the ease with which one can acquire palatable water in the sandy region as opposed to the rocky one. Instead of searching for streams or creeks like the rocky survivor would likely be forced to do, the sandy survivor could dig a shallow beach well and have plenty of water. So what we have here are so-called trade-offs. One area is well-suited for food, the other more so for fresh water. What both have in common, though, is a hinterland, that is, the land behind the shore itself. What the hinterland contains for shelter spots and material, tinder, kindling, and fuel for a fire, and possible signal materials can make a huge difference in just how easy a time of it a survivor has. The terrain, too, of this region, and whether the survivor is on the leeward or windward side of a peninsula, island, or near shore mountain range will play important roles. As you can see, there are a lot of variables here. We know that any survivor, regardless of his exact situation, will have to deal with one, though probably more, of five skill areas. Those being first aid, signals, fire building, food and water, and shelter. These five areas of concern are collectively known as the pattern for staying alive. So let's first look at first aid. Now the shoreline will present the survivor with some special concerns. The fringes of the ocean and seas are unique places to say the least. Strange creatures with names like lion's mane, Portuguese man of war, fire sponge, common razor, and long-spined urchin can be found on or just offshore. All can quickly and easily make life a terrible struggle for the unwary survivor. Injuries that appear minor at first 
have a nasty habit of becoming excruciatingly painful and even life-threatening in a remarkably short period of time. The survivor who cannot or does not treat all wounds swiftly and correctly is a threat to his own existence. While diving for lobster in abalone off San Clemente Island, Southern California, I failed to immediately treat two tiny open blisters that had appeared on one toe of each foot. When I finished my third and final dive of the day, I noticed some pain in my toes, but being a tough fellow, I decided that I could put up with the pain, which I assumed would soon subside. By dawn, I knew I had made a major mistake. The pain was now so unbearable that I could not walk. The diving medical technician aboard ran the tables three times to ensure I was not quote-unquote bent, but determined that I was okay there. I was medically evacuated to the nearest hospital where what seemed to me to be the entire hospital staff tried to figure out what was making this once tough guy perform his final frenzied dance of death every time you so much as thought about touching his inflamed foot. They never did figure out what I had for sure, but they did treat the ailment with oxacillin intravenously, which cured me in about a week. The moral of the story is treat all wounds quickly and completely, regardless of how trivial they appear to be. Assume nothing but the worst. A very common injury experienced by survivors along the seashore are abrasions. Abrasions, especially those caused by coral, can become infected in no time a situation the survivor needs to avoid. Caution is the key to avoiding them. Always wear footwear that will lessen the chances of you stumbling and falling, whether in or out of the water. Use a waiting staff while scavenging in the shallows. Punctures are also very common. Creatures like stingrays love to rest on sandy bottoms in the shallows, half hidden by sand. The protein-based toxin found in the barb on their tail can cause serious injury and intense pain. A hot water soaking of the wound will help alleviate the pain and reduce swelling in doing so. So next up, signals. Although sandy coasts are generally preferable for the construction and use of visual signals, the rocky shore can be just as facilitating for the crafty survivor. Many, if not most, shores have seaweed of some sort on or near them. Some dry species of seaweed produce a great deal of smoke when heaped onto a blazing fire. That same seaweed can be used to spell out SOS on a beach. Now, if you have reason to believe that rescue will be made via helicopter, set your seaweed signal fires in a row, three of them, about 25 yards apart if you have the room. This will allow the pilot to get a good idea of wind direction in the landing zone. If I were you, I would never be caught without a signal mirror. Who knows how many survivors have been rescued because they flashed a passing aircraft with a signal mirror. Now, audio signals can be of good use on a shore, but many tend to be drowned out by the action of the surf. As with all portions of this system of survival, approach signal construction and use from a worst-case scenario. Don't forget that the same wind that easily neutralizes the effectiveness of your whistle can neutralize your signal fires too. Your fire sets must be constantly checked to determine their state of readiness. They must be ready to be ignited at a moment's notice from flames carried by you, from your base fire, which will usually be your campfire. If I had my way, and I often do, I would have three visual and three audio signals prepared for use at all times, day or night. If I knew that one or two would not be of any use at a particular time, I would have alternates in mind. 
All of my signals would command a passersby attention. Next up is fires. Fire site selection is extremely important when it is to be used by a shoreline survivor. Quite frequently, the best location for your fire site will be near where the hinterland meets the shoreline itself. The border area may provide the survivor with quick access to his signal fire sets, as well as fire building materials both on the beach and in the hinterland itself. In other words, it puts you right in the middle of the action. As far as the fire triangle, heat, fuel, and oxygen is concerned, this region also protects the fire from too much wind and other elements that might have an adverse effect on your campfire. Tinder can come in many shapes and forms along the coast. Sandy beaches often have fine grasses growing behind the dunes. Seaweed that was hidden by the sea at high tide may become visible and accessible at low tide. When dried out in the sun, a thin strip of it can make good tinder. In subtropical zones, the inner husk of coconuts can be torn into shreds and dried, if necessary. It makes fire tinder. In temperate zones, the shore may be lined with conifers. Take some of the lowermost branches that are bare of needles and shave off some resinous shavings. They too can be used as tinder. Kindling may come in the way of those same conifers branches, but a little thicker. Driftwood can be chopped into thin sections, no thicker than a pencil, and used as kindling. Brush pulled from beneath that row of low shrubs might just be the ticket, and fuel shorelines are frequently ripe with the stuff since they are subject to fierce storms. Those storms blow down trees and sometimes even tear up the roots. The branches and limbs of those trees, plus the materials the tree knocks loose on its way down, can be put to some very good use as fuel for your fires. The interior of a dead fallen tree, known as punk wood, makes excellent fuel in many cases. Dig it out with a knife or tempered stick. Chances are the material you need for your fire is close at hand. Sit down and think. You'll come up with it. Next up, let's talk about food and water. Both rocky and sandy shores can offer an incredible variety of food, plant, or animals. A complete understanding of the shore's ecosystems will be of great assistance to the survivor when it comes to finding and preparing that food. This level of understanding is no easy achievement. I have been studying the sea for many years, but still find myself in the learning mode every time I venture down to the shore or out to sea. On sandy shores, the sand itself may harbor ghost crabs, clams, and a whole slew of other creatures that can be put to good use, such as worms and other things. Knowing what you are looking at will allow you to make use of it. The surf zone of sandy beaches may be home to a huge array of fish. In some cases, you can see those inhabitants swimming in the waves' faces as it crests. Get out your fishing gear and go for it. No bait? There is bait there, my friends. I was once attending a tropical survival course in the West Indies. One of my colleagues surprised me one morning with several earthworms that he had dug up right in the sand. I had never found any worms of this nature in the sand before, despite my digging quite a few holes in several beaches on that island. Nevertheless, he found them there on the first try. Now, rocky areas may contain tasty delicacies as blue mussels, limpets, and a bevy of other mollusks. My daughter is an expert at collecting snails of all sorts in the tide pools of a point near our home in Maine. She'll even drag home different species of seaweed such as duke, laver, and Irish moss. Not bad for a 10-year-old. Now, water procurement along the coast can be just as easy as food. That is not to say that it will be easy. Try digging down three or four feet in the sand, 
behind the first dune or pressure ridge on a beach. Now remember, that dune might be a mere barely discernible rise in the sand. Shore up the sides as the water seeps into the hole and wait a couple of hours. The top two inches or so of that water will be potable, though possibly a bit sulfurous tasting. Why wait? It allows the salty water to settle. If sand is less than abundant on your beach, search the shores for outlets of creeks and streams. Check the hinterlands for the same as well as springs, puddles, ponds, and so on. Your map may give you a hint as to where to look. How about the base of a cliff or a rock overhang? Maybe some water has collected there. Been raining lately? Set out some containers to gather up the next rainfall. And then let's talk about shelters. Of all nature's elements, wind, in my opinion, is the most frequently encountered problem that has adverse effects on shelters along the coast. The problem can be minimized by good site selection, improvisation, and sound construction. In other words, rig for foul weather. Dependent upon local conditions, two of the most widely used shelters found at shoreline survival sites are the lean-to and the beach trench. We have all seen plenty of lean-tos. They are versatile and can easily be modified to fit the situation. If this is what you intend to build, make darn sure it is built to survive the rigors of the coast. Reinforce all weak points and whatever is at hand since it is above ground. The elements will do their best to destroy it. Now a beach trench shelter is useful on sandy shores. Dig a trench deep enough for protection but not so deep as to bring groundwater into the bottom of it. Shore up the sides. From the hinterland and the beach itself, collect materials to construct a roof and so on. The roof will be exposed to the elements, so reinforce it just as you would a lean-to. Line the floor with vegetation from the hinterland. Oh yes, I suggest you build that beach trench above the high tide line, which can be recognized by the debris line. Otherwise, you will have built a pool instead of a house. Of course, that pool will add to the property value. As you can see, the shore offers quite a bit for the survivor. If there were one place I had my choice to survive on, I would select the subtropical windward seacoast. The possibilities are endless. Also, make sure to check the other articles suggested by Bob as you will find more useful information to add to your shoreline survival tips. Alright guys, there's about five comments here and one like really super long one that someone left uh, that you can come and check out. So let me talk very briefly because I live very closely to the coast, right? Um, you know, a lot of the times we talk about in preparedness, we have our ideas that people will, when it comes to, for instance, the Golden Horde, or if uh, there was truly a breakdown, people would go into the country, right? One of the cool things is people don't really think about, or at least I don't know if people think this way. I've never really heard this discussed is that they would head to the coast because of all the different resources that would be there. The fish and the different seafood and, and, and stuff that you, can, that you can do there, right? And so that is a great possibility of being able to do that. However, living in Houston, being very close to Galveston, I know that Galveston is probably one of the nastiest beaches I have ever been on. And I've been on, you know, just thinking about beaches i know that i've been like to virginia beach i've been to beaches like in cozumel mexico when we went to a cruise and different things like that and i just know that galveston is just nasty and not only that but there have been some uh reports that there's been like extra bacteria so you will you know they do testing on the water and stuff like that 
And so I don't know if this happens around other uh, shores, right? Other beaches and things like that. But I know that if whatever the news or, you know, mostly I'm, I know this because people talk about it, is that the water gets tested in the Gulf uh, around Galveston. And then, you know, there's bacteria that is found there. And so they recommend that you don't go into the water, especially that you don't go into the water with any cuts because that could be very, very dangerous. And so you got to think about that. If there's all kind of bacteria and stuff in there, what kind of you know, the food that you're getting out of there, the fish, the the crabs, the, you know, whatever that you're getting out of there. I mean, what kind of things do they have? The other thing to think about that, you know, when he mentioned this in the article that a lot of people live along the coastline, other things that are around the coastline are nuclear plants, right? And so they do that for the water and that aspect of it. And so you have nuclear plants on coastlines. You also have them up and down the Mississippi. If, you, uh, if you've ever really looked at where nuclear plants are in, uh, in the United States. And so if you were in a true poop hit the fan situation, and you know where the grid was down and all that kind of stuff and nuclear plants were melting down well that stuff is going to be going into into the sea and so that's something that you have to deal with there as well so guys there's pros and cons to all of it right if you if you are near the coast and you are very familiar with that ecosystem like he was mentioning here in the article that could be very beneficial but you should also get a good understanding of, hey, how far away are we from nuclear plants? If they were to go down, right, um, how far away are we for that to uh, influence and impact and, and to harm the sea life around us? You know, And of course, you have that same situation if you're somewhere inland as well and you have a nuclear plant by you, you know, you're still going to have that situation. But there are some things to consider. You know, what, what are the, you know, the, the factories around there? Are the factories, uh, you know, polluting the water? Are they throwing stuff in there? Um, you know, do you hear reports of not going into the water because there's so much junk in there? Uh, you know, is there a place where you can go to find out that kind of information? Because if that's going on, then, you know, and the sad state of the matter is that, we have done a lot of damage to our world and to nature and and stuff just because of progress and uh, and that that's pretty sad right uh, because there are so many things damaged there's you know i know that we were talking about aquifers that were damaged at least i was talking with uh, somebody else recently uh, about aquifers that were damaged because things that uh, you know super super funds uh, and chemicals that were you know leaked into or leached into the ground and all these different things that were going. Actually, I was talking to somebody at work about that. And, uh, you know, how dangerous just, you know, you would think the groundwater because things were just leached in. And it could have been years and years ago when people, when this wasn't as, uh, you know, people weren't taking care of, you know, nature as well. Or there wasn't as many, I guess, you know, government guidelines. And of course, you know, that's uh, one in one way you don't want many government guidelines and, and government restrictions on the other side you want to be able to protect nature and all that kind of stuff and uh, you know you don't want it polluted and even you know the worst thing is when it's polluted and you can't tell because you know just by looking at it it's you know it's polluted and it's you know in the in the bacteria the microorganisms and all that kind of stuff so that's something to consider as well right so there's always there's always something to consider along those lines. 
but a lot of great points here and a lot of resources on the shore. So if you live in a, in a situation where maybe you don't have any nuclear plants around you, the factories aren't polluting the water, man, you might have a gold. You might be sitting on a gold mine there because of all the things that you, you have available. Yes, you'll be dealing with hurricanes and you'll, you would be dealing with wind and all that kind of stuff, maybe tsunamis. And if we were in a poop hit the fan situation, you wouldn't get a lot of notice about all that kind of stuff. But there's always something, right? And so I just, I think that there's the seashore is something that, or any shoreline is something that people don't really think about having all those resources available to you. And, uh, you know, of course the give and take and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, guys, like always, I'm going to link to this article in the show notes. So you can come over to prepperswill.com and check out the article, maybe read some of the comments for yourself, dig a little bit deeper into this, uh, you know, this article. Well, everyone, that's it for episode 580. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can head on over to the prepperwebsitepodcast.com or search for us in your podcast catcher. We are on all the networks. And that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. And take a moment to connect with me. I have a link in the show notes so you can join the Prepper website email list. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.